The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. You know, in Egypt, you know, they were crying out, you know, we want bread, 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 because they just, everything was just too expensive. If we can use vertical farming to actually help alleviate those issues, yet again, it helps create stability in places which historically have been unstable. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 7, regular listeners to the show, welcome back. Welcome back. It's so fun to hear you again, <laughs> to have you hear me again, to know that you're listening on the other side of this microphone. At times, it's a little weird when I'm speaking into a quiet room and remembering that I'm connecting with each and every one of you as you're listening, whether it's on your earbuds or on your desktop speaker or on your desktop. So if you ever feel the urge to share where and when you're listening to this show, as always, send them my way, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. If you just happen to find this show for the first time because you found out about this topic or this guest, then you are welcome as well, new listener, and I hope you stick around because it just keeps getting better. <laughs> I'm Harry Duran, and since 2020, I've been interviewing some of the most fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. Last week was no exception. We had a really lively conversation with Tim Hade. He's the co-founder and CEO of Scale Microgrids. It's a company that builds and invests in the world's most cutting edge microgrid solutions. We talked about the importance of making our energy infrastructure cleaner and more affordable and more resilient. And Tim is definitely the subject matter expert when it comes to that. We talk a little bit about decentralization and the actions we have to take to address the biggest problem facing humanity, climate change. This week, another great conversation is with Tristan Fisher. He's the CEO of Fisher Farms. Tristan has been involved in sustainable energy and sustainable food for over 20 years. In today's conversation, we talk about the benefits of vertical farming crops over field grown, the looming food security crisis, and the importance of being a kind and empathetic leader. As always, if you're enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, as I'd love to read yours out next. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Tristan, 
Here are a few words from the folks that support this show, including one brand new sponsor I'm excited to talk about. This episode is brought to you by Indoor AgCon 2023. I'm so happy to have been working with the team last year. Indoor AgCon 2022 was my very first indoor farming conference. So it was really eye-opening for me. So I'll always be grateful to the team there for rolling out the carpet for me. <laughs> and I uh, really had a good time meeting a lot of past guests and excited to join them again this year. Entering its 10th year in a row, it's the largest trade show and conference for vertical farming and CEA, and it's returning to Caesars Forum Conference Center in Las Vegas on February 27th and 28th of 2023. Once again, they'll be co-located with the National Growers Association show as well, which is a really good fit for them. The conference keeps growing, and this year it's doubled in size. The expo floor now has more than 170 booths filled with new product resources and solutions to explore. You'll hear from experts, including CEOs, growers, investors, and others in the field during this full-scale educational conference. As always, you'll be able to connect with peers, grocers, and other potential new business partners at their great networking events. I haven't even gotten to the best part. The team at Indoor AgCon has given listeners of this show 20% off their full access conference pass. All you have to do is use promo code VFP, as in Vertical Farming Podcast, and sign up at indoor.ag. See you there. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that this is the space where I get to talk about some of the fantastic sponsors and supporters of this show. If you are interested in being one of those sponsors, by all means, reach out to me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We've got inventory available for season seven, and the reach of the show just continues to increase year over year. And we'd love to partner with you and get the word out about your company or service. So Tristan Fisher, CEO of Fisher Farms, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So for the benefit of the listener, where are you calling in from? So I am, Fisher Farms is based in the UK, and uh, we have uh, two vertical farm buildings, one which is near Litchfield, which is just north of Birmingham, and uh, which is uh, northwest of London. And then we have a second vertical farm, which is currently under construction, is actually being installed and fitted out at the moment. And that is just east of Cambridge in a place called Norwich in North. So we have two vertical farms. And then we have a number of people, number of team members who are scattered around the UK for those who aren't specifically involved in farm operations. So we've got a bit of a wide uh, footprint for the various people within the organization. So we'll get into the specifics of Fisher Farms. And what I'd like to usually do first was wind the clock back a little bit to get a feel for how you ended up here. But I thought I'd ask, since we are recording this in December 2022, if you could describe in one or two words what the year has been like for you and what if the holidays or, or this time of the year means a little bit of relaxing or, or if you have a chance to catch your breath. So 2022 has been a big year for us. And the reason for that is that we've spent a big chunk of it under construction. So we were currently building, you know, have been building our, our second vertical farm, It's a, which is a really big building. It's a four acre footprint building, it has about 25,000 square meters of growing space inside it, which makes it probably one of the biggest vertical farms in the world. And so there's been a lot of work on the actual construction the external construction side, but there's also been a huge amount of testing which we've been doing at various different locations. We've been testing of equipment at Farm One, the original site near Litchfield, but we've also been doing a lot of testing with all of our different suppliers and so forth like that to really make sure that when the equipment is installed, 
it actually works first time round because it's a big building, big farm, and testing, testing, testing is absolutely critical. So it's been a very busy year, and uh, we've been hiring people to to work in farm too. So the team is getting bigger, and actually later on this evening, I'm going to be joining Christmas party with the farm two guys. So to sort of celebrate all the hard work that everybody's been doing throughout the year. So no, it's been a busy year, very exciting year, a lot of growth behind us, and then really. You know, when we hit the new year, all the equipment will be you know, finally installed and we'll start operating, generating food in the, the first quarter of next year out of the Farm 2 building. So that's exciting stuff. So you know, it's been a busy year. Sounds like, yeah, I definitely want to get into the details of that. I was curious in doing a little bit of research, obviously in a bit of your background, you got your start in finance and then your first foray into renewables was the time you spent at uh, Shell. So can you, I know we're winding the clock a bit back here, but I just want to give, provide some context for the listener. Can you give a little bit of insight into, if you can remember what things were like back then and where your interests started in renewables and sustainability? So I think I should probably start even before then at university, I was at Cambridge University, and I did some research for Paul Hawken, who wrote a book called Natural Capitalism. And Natural Capitalism was a, was a fascinating book for me because it really sort of highlighted how if you want to do good in the world, you also need to actually be profitable and develop businesses which intrinsically capitalistic. So using you no know, capital to grow and having a business which is just purely a sort of charitable activity isn't good enough if you want to make a big difference. And so that got me thinking about, well, what could I do with my life, which was meaningful, and actually sort of develop in a way which could put my services to the best use of for sort of humanity as, as a whole. So renewables was a big thing, you know, in the mid 1990s, when I really sort of started off career, and I was involved in some of the very early wind projects, and then solar projects, and so forth. And it was an era where climate change always deemed as something which was going to happen in the future. It was a future problem and we were trying to do things which we would help solve that issue. And really over the last you know, 20 odd years or so, climate change has shifted from being a future problem to a problem which we are actually experiencing today. And there's a lot of evidence to show that it is happening. And there's a lot of evidence which suggests that it will continue to get worse over time. And so as a result of that, a lot of my activities sort of started to shift over the last few years away from just how can you deal with climate change in terms of trying to prevent it into how do you live with climate change? So if climate change is actually happening, you know, what do you do in a world where it's the temperatures are rising, where you have very irregular weather patterns? So you can have a year where you'll have droughts and then you can have floods and then you can have cold patches and then you can have warm patches all within a sort of you know, six month, 12 month period of time. And that's very difficult from an agricultural perspective. And so I was involved in a project a number of years ago with a big food group in the UK called Bernard Matthews, which was which is a large turkey producer and a large chicken producer. And they are grown in large controlled environment agricultural buildings. And we installed biomass heating systems into about 249 poultry sheds. And that was very interesting from a sort of climate change perspective, but also really got me thinking about food and how do we actually feed the world in a way where we can actually control um, all the environmental parameters. And so for me, 
the renewable side has been very much a link to what I'm doing in vertical farming. And, and actually, all of our vertical farms have strong renewable emphasis as well. So solar attached to them, batteries attached to them, you know, getting wind attached to them as well. So I'm using the old access for the renewables sort of supply chain in the vertical farming sector as well. So it's a combination of food and energy production. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, especially given how much experience you've had in renewables. You've also had some experience with wave energy as well in your time at Aquamine Power, if I read that correctly. Yeah, I mean, so I've now been involved in a lot of renewable energies. Um, so I've been involved in wind energy, solar energy, wave energy, tidal energy, smart grid, battery technology, energy efficiency for steel mills, for cement facilities coal mine methane recovery. So a very, very large gamut of renewable energy technologies. And so I've seen cost curves change and seeing how you can have a technology which starts off being very, very expensive and a technology which people go, well, this is never going to amount to anything. You know, so when I was first doing solar projects, solar really wasn't a great technology. Wind wasn't really a great technology. It was expensive. It was intermittent. And if you move on sort of 20, 25 years after from when I started. If you look at in the UK now, wind energy is the lowest, the new wind energy systems which are coming on stream are the lowest cost electricity in the market with the exception of solar. And if you look at solar, you know, it's predicted that by 2027, there will be more solar installed globally than coal. And so you've seen a huge transition in the energy market. And the reason I mention this is because vertical farming today is a bit like solar and a bit like wind energy 20 years ago. It's an embryonic technology. It's really not good enough, but there are lots of hints about why it could be really fantastic. And so when I look at what I'm doing, I'm sort of focusing on the here and now in terms of growing short leafy green things like most people in the market are, so salads and herbs and so forth. But ultimately, where we need to be going as an industry, moving to crops which actually make a big difference. And so for us, we have a further our phase one crops, which are short leafy green things, salads and herbs. We have a phase two crops, which are fruiters. So things like strawberries and tomatoes, which yet again, a lot of people are doing. But then finally, it's the phase three crops. And for three, phase three crops for us are rice and wheat in terms of carbohydrates, and then peas and soybeans in terms of protein. And so we've done trials with wheat, we've done trials with soya, we've done trials with peas. So we know we can grow it, we can know we can good, grow it at, uh, at good volumes. But really the question is, how do we get the price point of those products so that they are also competitive with field-grown crops? And if we can do that, then you can feed the world. And that is extraordinarily exciting to be part of an industry which is transforming itself so rapidly. I have the faith that it can happen based on the practical experience that I've had with renewables, where I have seen renewables technology go from not very good, very expensive technologies to massive, huge industries, which are cheaper than natural gas, cheaper than coal, cheaper than nuclear. And uh, so it can be done. Yeah, it's really interesting, all the experience you've had, uh, some experience in aquaculture as well. So it seems like you've had your hands, smart batteries, I think, <laughs> was a little bit, I saw some time there as well. And all those pieces really are important 
in painting the picture for folks that are just getting acquainted with vertical farming and seeing, you know, a lot of people say it's a hype or it's a fad or it's something that's not sustainable. And I think a lot of the arguments against vertical farming are probably ones that you experienced in the early days when people were talking about the the viability of wind, the viability of solar, even things like wave. And, and are you seeing like those same sort of parallels in terms of the adoption curve, the hype curve, businesses getting a lot of funding and failing, you know, which is something we've now seen recently in, in the world of vertical farming as well. And it's interesting because of your perspective and your background and your experience with these technologies that I'm wondering if, if you are seeing parallels in terms of people's response to it and also, you know, gauging where we are in that life cycle compared to what you've worked on in the past. I think that at Fisher Farms, the real focus which we have is actually on producing products which are cost competitive with field grown crops. So our view is that if we can compete head to head at the same price point with field grown crops, then we should be able to sell our products into the market. Because as all of your listeners and all the various speakers that you've had on your podcast will be aware of, the quality that you get from vertical farming is just better than the quality you get from a field-grown crop. You know, it's tastier, has longer shelf life, uh, is more nutritious, has a lower environmental footprint. You know, there's just a whole long list of reasons why vertical farm products are better than field-grown crops. But the problem is that if your product is more expensive than field-grown crops, then essentially you go back down to the charitable act which I was talking about very, very early on you know, with the Paul Hawken analogy that you need to have product which actually is commercially viable so you can actually use the profit incentive to do well, do more of the same, reinvest the profits, do more of the same, reinvest those profits again and again and again. So for us, focusing on cost parity is really, really important. And, and I think that if you're a business which is focused on premium, and focused on, no, wow, we have the most amazing quality, but we're much more expensive, then your market will always be smaller than it would be if you have a product which people just buy because it's cheap. And you could do a little bit of a premium product, but ultimately people are worried about their pocketbooks. You know, they're worried about how much money they're spending on food, on everything, they, you know, on spending in general. And so if you have a product which is the same price point, you'll do well. And so our focus as a business is always about price competitiveness. And so although, for example, we know that we can grow phase two crops, you know, the strawberries and the tomatoes, et cetera, at the moment, we know we can't sell those products at a price point which is competitive with field-grown crops. And there are certain things which have to change in our business and externally that until those changes happen, we will be too expensive. Same thing for our phase three crops. So we know we can grow rice. We know we can grow wheat. We know we can grow you know, soya, beans, and peas. That's a fact, but we're too expensive. And we think that we will remain too expensive in those products for a good 10 to 15 years period of time. But 10 to 15 years sounds like a lot, but it's not. It really is actually a very short period of time. And yet again, if you've got the experience that I have in renewables and I've seen the world change over the last you know, 20, 25 years or so, I have real confidence that something which is too expensive now can be the right price point in 10 to 15 years uh, time. And we have a, a pretty good plan at Fisher Farms to actually get ourselves down that cost curve from where we are now, which is too expensive, to where we need to be, 
which is it's going to take 10 to 15 years to get there. Yeah, it's a very helpful perspective for the listener, especially for folks that are looking for quick results or are trying to turn things around in a time frame that's not reasonable. And, and obviously using the context of renewables and the experience you've had in the adoption curve for them earlier on, I think people need to have a little bit more patience. And I think sometimes in this environment, it's hard, especially when you're talking about investors investing tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in some of these projects and are looking for profitability on a on a time frame that's not realistic. And I think it's helpful to have that perspective. I'm curious for yourself, when you became aware of indoor farming, when it came on your radar, and it's something you started to pay attention to? So it very much came on radar around 2015, 2016 or so. So you know, this was the point where I sort of came to the conclusion that there were a lot of people doing renewables and that the market shifted from being a very open market to a market which was getting increasingly crowded. And it was getting crowded in the sense that you know, first of all, a lot of people were doing it, but it was also the sense that it was never going to be quite enough to actually solve the sort of climate sort of crisis. And as I started to think about what responses you could have for that, I started to investigate the food sector in more detail. And so one of the things which always struck me was how the population has expanded you know, over the last few decades. So my father was born in 1930. Uh, he's 92 years old now. And there were 2 billion people alive when he was born. And there are now 8 billion people. So four times increase in the population. But if you look deeper and you say, look at the year 2000, there are a billion middle-class people in the year 2000. And in 2020, there were 4 billion middle-class people. Now, that's an amazing accomplishment. It's amazing to think that we've gone from 1 billion in, 20, in 2000 to 4 billion middle-class people just 20 years later. And that's something which we as a human species should be immensely proud of that we've taken so many people out of poverty. But there is a issue associated with that as well. And the issue is that those 4 billion people want the kind of lifestyles which we take for granted in the West. So they want to have the salads and the herbs and the salmon and the steaks, and they want to go on a holiday and they want to go skiing and they want to do all the sort of the nice things which you know people get to do in the middle class. And that imposes a huge burden on the planet in terms of what it can sustain. And in the meantime, if you look at the agricultural sector directly, and you look at the two key things which you need for farming, one which is land and one which is water, if you look on the land side, there is less good quality soil every single year. And that's partly because farming techniques are very damaging to the soil, but it's also because a lot of places where they have good farming as the urban population increases, a lot of those locations, which were once farmland, have now become cities. And so, you know, if you look in China and you had a village of 10,000 people, then 20 years later, you've got 20 million people you know, living in fantastic agricultural land. So that great farmland has been turned into you know, shopping malls and roads and apartment buildings and stuff like that. So the land is becoming a problem. And the second issue you have is water. So about 25% of all the world's food production comes from land which uses aquifer water for irrigation. And in about 20 years' time, in most of the world where they have that type of system, that water will be gone or will be unusable. 25% of the world's food comes from land where in 20 years' time, there won't be any water. 
And so you've got, on the one hand, a massive population increase. And the second, you've got a decrease in the world's ability to actually provide food for that increasing population and that increasing middle class. And so there's a larger and larger gap, which is starting to emerge. And climate change is really sort of putting fuel on that fire. So the fire already exists, but climate change just makes all of those issues worse. It makes it much more irregular in terms of creating harvests and so forth. So food security becomes a real problem. And so for me, as I was sort of thinking about you know, what to do, figuring out how to actually feed the world became increasingly a strong motivating factor for me. So I started of looking at things like aquaculture. So looking at how we could grow fish onshore so we could reduce the impact we have on the oceans. And then also looking at vertical farming. And the vertical farming side, I think, was most exciting for me or more exciting for me because of the realization that everybody fundamentally needs to have carbohydrates. And so if you can grow rice and if you can grow wheat, that's a major step forward. And ultimately, if you can grow proteins like peas and soy, that also allows most people to have a healthy vegetarian diet. And you can feed a lot of people in those kinds of systems. And to give you an idea, if you were to take you know, Fisher Farms building and make it three quarters of the size of London. So in London, there's you know, the capital, there's a ring road, which goes all the way around it. It's a motorway called the M25. And if you were to fill that area, about three quarters of that area, with one just ridiculously large building, that building is enough space to feed 8 billion people out of it. So this is why vertical farming is just astounding. You know, the productivity that you can get out of vertical farming without needing access to lots of soil, and because vertical farming uses a fraction of the water of conventional farming, you can actually grow a lot of food in areas where they've got lousy soil, where they don't have a lot of water, and actually have a very productive system. So we think that ultimately, you know, we would want to be able to grow and develop vertical farms in places like North Africa, where you can have bad soil but have very, very good access to solar energy. So you build ridiculously large solar farms with ridiculously large vertical farms. And instead of having those countries import food from the Ukraine and from Russia, you could actually have them produce their own food and eventually start to be able to export their food to other parts of the world as well. And so that's enormously exciting. And if you look at a world where the alternative, a lot of people with not enough land and not enough water that is a world of conflict. That's a world where people need to migrate on epic scales because if they don't, they will die because there's just not enough food available for them in their local areas. And so vertical farming has a very active role to play in this and a very hopeful and exciting role to play in solving this problem. It's really fascinating when you paint that picture and you talk about the historical context and the impact of events that have affected us worldwide, like COVID, like the war in the Ukraine. And I think it's things that people take for granted that we were going to be able to continue our current trajectory without any impacts. And I think we're a large portion of the world is having that realization. I was recently in Dubai 
And I think it's the numbers 85 to 90% of the food gets imported there. And, and it's just different parts of the, the world have different challenges. We obviously saw an impact in terms of wheat production because of what's happening in, in the Ukraine, supply chain issues with what's happening. It's almost been like it's a big wake up call for folks in terms of really thinking through like where we source our food from and why it's important to have that as close to where we consume it as possible um, to avoid some of these issues. Because I think some people don't put the pieces together, I think, when they think about food consumption, access to food, the need for food. And when that's taken away, you do see things escalate to the point where, you know, countries go to war and there's conflicts arising. And when you look at the core issues related to that, you know, which if you just highlighted, a lot of it is related to, you know, just maintaining day-to-day life. And that's when, when people, when that need, when that is threatened at a country level, it's a direct correlation to some of the conflicts arising. So it's interesting that you point that out. It's absolutely true. And if you look back at the 2010 sort of Arab Spring, in North Africa and you know, going all the way around into from West North Africa, heading east to Egypt, heading northeast again into Syria. Those were fundamentally caused by food issues where people were running out of food. You know, in Egypt, you know, they were crying out, you know, we want bread, 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 because they just everything was just too expensive. And you know, if you look at what's going on now in, in, you know, as a result of the Ukraine crisis and the Russian crisis, a very large percentage of North African food comes from Russia and Ukraine. And those a shortage of food, but the food that they do get is very, very expensive in a world which is also extraordinarily expensive in terms of getting access to you know, fossil fuels and so forth like that as well. And so people are seeing a significant drop in income and a massive increase in their cost of living. And that creates strife. And so if we can use vertical farming to actually help alleviate those issues, yet again, it helps create stability in places which historically have been unstable. Yeah, so true. So for the benefit of the listener who may not know the origin story of Fisher Farms, can you give a a brief recap of how it started? So I set up the business in late 2016, early 2017. And I I basically just wanted to see what I could do. So I you know, made myself a hydroponics kit and uh, put it at home. And actually, I uh, tied the, the lights underneath my wife's vanity table in our bedroom and uh, had a sort of a card, you know, had a, as a plastic box with some grow plugs and some nets and a sort of little aqua uh, sort of fish tank uh, system and just to see what could grow. And I was amazed that I actually was able to grow anything. And uh, so I thought, well, God, this is kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's actually possible to, to do this. And then I sort of reached out to some people I knew to see whether they could help me actually turn that into reality. And so started off uh, with a shipping container and filled the shipping container, you know, designed a racking system with yet again, the sort of vertication system to actually produce you know, all the, the hydroponic system needed for a vertical farm. It was a reefer, so we could have fantastic control of the air in terms of humidity and in terms of temperature. And then I just grew a whole range of different crops, mainly short leafy green things, you know, your salads and herbs, but also you know, grew things like stevia to, to see whether we could do something like that as well. And yet again, got really good results. And uh, so I then reached out to some 
friends and some former colleagues of mine and sort of said, no, to sort of do a friends and family round in terms of investment. And they could see that it was an exciting venture and they worked with me in the past. And so they thought, okay, we'll you know, put a little bit extra money in, help Tristan out. We got some great results. And then we got the attention of a fantastic investment house in the UK called Gresham House, who focused on ESG related investments. And they, you know, they've done a lot of, you know, stuff in the renewable space, social housing, forestry, and things like that. And so they could see the potential of vertical farming. And then they provided us the funding to build our first vertical farm, which was completed in 2019. And then also the funding to build our second vertical farm, which is currently, you know, it's built. And we're just fitting in all the, the final bits of equipment at the moment before we start seeding in February next year. Is this the first time you have the CEO role? No, I my first CEO role was a long time ago. It was something like 2000. I think 2000 was probably my first CEO role. I had an internet startup then. I also was a CEO of a company called uh, Camco, which was developing projects in China and Russia using the clean development mechanism, the CDM, as part of the Kyoto Protocol. So a lot of energy efficiency projects there. And then I had another company called Lumicity, which I also set up, which was focused on solar projects and biomass projects in the UK market. So now I've been a CEO, been an entrepreneur for quite some time. But I also like working for big companies. You know, there's, I work for Citigroup. I work, which was a great company. I work for Shell and Shell Renewables. And Shell was also a fantastic company to work for. You know, great people, very well run, sort of a lot of excitement, a lot of potential while I was there. So, no, I've worked in various different guises over the years, but I've been a CEO for quite some time now. I can definitely relate to the benefits of working for a big company. I, used, I was in corporate for over 20 years. I worked at uh, JP Morgan Chase and then E-Trade as well. So it's nice to have the backing of a big company like that. And uh, in 2015, I ventured off in, into becoming an entrepreneur. And once you start down the entrepreneur path, it feels like you can never go back <laughs> to working the regimented time. And you, once you have that bug bites, it seems like it's something that's going to be forever part of your DNA. How have you grown as a CEO You know, with the previous experience you have and now in the time you've spent at Fisher Farms? It's a great question. I think that clearly I've got more experience in terms of what to do and I feel more comfortable and confident about how to run a business, how to manage people. People is sort of a such an important component of, of running any kind of business and sort of how do you manage that effectively. I've clearly got a more, lot more experience in terms of working with investors and understanding why they want things and, and I think having you know, my own personal investment experience you know, many, many years ago, it, it also helps me to understand what it's like to be on the other side of the table in terms of those kinds of relationships. But I think that ultimately, what you're trying to do as a CEO is get the best out of your team, because ultimately, you need them, because you know, they are the guys who are the specialists. They are the ones who understand lighting. They understand water systems. They are the ones who stand the technology. They are the ones who stand the growing. So those are the guys who the sort of the sector experts. And I think that as a CEO, you're trying to make sure that people know where you're going, why you're going in a particular direction. Now, the why is a super important component of, of people's motivating facts. Now, why are we doing something? What's the point? So showing to people you know, why we're doing something, showing where we're going, I think is important. Trying to get people to cooperate and actually just get stuff done. 
try not to have silos in organizations. It's quite easy to develop a silo and have a have your own team and but you got to get people continuously communicating with each other across the various different parts of the businesses so they feel that they're part of one company rather than one subset of uh, of the company. So, yeah, lots of lessons learned along the way. I think what's interesting is when you start a company and you're you're the CEO, you know, you have direct contact with the team that you're building with the folks that you've hired naturally i imagine you you work with people that you know that you've worked with in the past that you trust and whose work you know but as you start to grow you start to have a need to develop more trust and faith in your team and your ability and your managers to manage that growing staff to the point where you know you can't there comes a moment i imagine every ceo's life when you start to not know who's being hired <laughs> and have trust that the team is being developed in a way that you know fits what your vision of what you would like it to be. I think that's so very, very true. And when you start off in the business, when you speak to somebody, that person has the single brain and has the single body to actually make that whatever happen. So you speak to one person, you they say, yes, I'll go off and do it. But as an organization gets bigger, there is what I refer to as a distributed brain. So there's lots of people who are involved in that decision. And so each part of that brain needs to be able to communicate with each other effectively. But it's not just a distributed brain. You also have a distributed body because there won't be just one person who's doing that action. There will be multiple people who are involved in actually making that happen. And all of those people also need to coordinate with each other and understand why they're doing something and uh, and how do they actually need to cooperate with each other. And so I think early stage businesses can get away with very, very few processes and you can just get stuff done. But as an organization gets larger, you actually need to bring in process. And the trick is to ensure that you have the right amount of process and not too little and not too much. And so the sort of the looking for the Goldilocks level of process with an organization, I think is very difficult. And it's a challenge which I think all companies go through as they scale. And you also have situations where, you know, people who you know started the organization develop and have different roles to what they originally had at the beginning. And so ensuring that they develop in the, in the right way for themselves as individuals, but also as for the company is always a challenge as well. I think that Ultimately, one of the things which you're looking for in a business like ours is ideas and the creation of ideas. And I mention this because there is no real manual that you can just pick off the shelf which says, this is how to be a vertical farmer. There's no, this doesn't exist. There are very few people who actually have vertical farming experience. So when we're hiring people, you know, we're generally hiring people who have very good sector experience in terms of what, or I should say domain experience in terms of they're very good engineer or they're very good water specialist. But very few of them have actually worked in a vertical farm. And so you're, so as an organization, um, you need to ensure that people are always putting ideas on the table and how to have and to learn and to cooperate and not to be frightened of putting their ideas on the table. So I, I always talk about bad ideas. So I say to people, look, my terrible idea, you know, plus, you know, Harry, your really awful idea, you know, plus, you know, 
Eric's appalling idea and Christian's dreadful idea, and they're generally bad ideas. They're not like we're pretending that they're actually good ideas, but they're just really bad ideas. But if you put all those terrible ideas together, they can create a genius idea at the end of that process, something which nobody was expecting to happen. And if people are frightened about putting ideas on the table, then they won't. So if there's any sense in an organization that people get slapped down for putting their terrible idea, they go, ooh, I'm not really sure I want to put this idea because it's an embarrassing idea or what will people think of me? Then those ideas don't happen. And that idea, that bad idea doesn't combine with the other bad idea to create that beautiful, brilliant, genius breakthrough idea at the end of that process. So encouraging people to work together and actually put all their ideas together, I think is a really important part of, yet again, creating a culture within an organization. And I think that as a CEO, creating that culture is very, very important. Culture of trust, of openness, and dare I say, you know, of kindness and of love and affection. You know, we want people to be nice to each other, to be good to each other, because if they are nice to each other and they are good to each other, they're more likely to be able to cooperate and help each other out. And that's what it's all about, really. I love the fact that you brought that all together and then just this idea of being kindness, <laughs> of being kind, uh, which I think is something that not a lot of leaders talk about. Is this something that you just learned over the years, uh, Tristan, or is this something that you've seen in other leaders that have inspired you? That's a good question. You know, how different I am, am I now from 20 years ago? I mean, I think I've clearly grown, I've clearly developed. You know, I have you know, kids of my own, you know, so I have four kids. So I'm, I think you sort of become more aware of others and you become more aware of sharing and not being quite as selfish as, you know, you kind of force not to be selfish when you've got lots of other people to look after and so forth like that. So I think that being a parent probably really helps in that process. But I think that ultimately nobody really wants to work in a company where they've got horrible people. You know, like why would you choose? So the way I think about it is that anybody who comes to work for me has to be good. Otherwise, they shouldn't be working for me. But if they're good, it essentially means that they can go and work anywhere else. And so effectively, they are volunteering their time to work for me and to work with me. And I don't mean volunteering the time as in they're not getting paid because they're all getting paid you know, well. It's not a money thing. It's they're choosing to spend the most valuable resource that they have in their lives, which is their time involved in a project with me and with all the other people who are working alongside them. And so you want people to be happy doing that. And, you know, I think that if you're happy, you're probably going to be doing a better job. And if you're doing a better job, you're probably going to be happy, and therefore you're going to do a better job. And so it's a virtuous circle where the happier you are, the better you are, and therefore the happier you are. So that's the kind of culture which I think is really, really important to try to encourage within an organization. So, you know, some businesses are just horrible places to work and they're, they're backstabbing and they're mean to each other. And, you know, life is too short. Why would you want to, why would you choose to work in that kind of place if you're really good? If you're not really good, then you may have no choice. And that's unfortunate. But if you are good, you should be choosing to work with good people. Very, very important. And it's something I think a lot of leaders don't talk about. But I think in this environment, especially with what's happened with COVID and people's realization, workers realization that they have opportunities now to work 
anywhere they want and sometimes anywhere in the world. And, you know, remote work is not going away anytime soon. So now it seems like some of the, the power dynamic has shifted. And I think people are aligning more with companies that fit their values and where they feel like they can contribute, but also that their time and their effort is respected and appreciated. And I think that's something you're alluding to, which I think is great. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about the current product offering for Fisher Farms, how that's changed from when you started to present day, who you currently serve, what the current offerings are, and who the ideal clients are now. So in the UK market, there's a heavy focus on brands. So I think that's something which is quite different from the US market, where I think you know brands are very, very powerful. Whereas in the UK, and you have a lot of supermarkets who have got very strong brands of their own, sort of the Sainsbury's and Marks Spencer's and Waitrose and people like that of the world who will have their own branded products. And so for us, it's really trying to make sure that we have, you know, we give our customers you know, access to products which you know, work for them and having some kind of branding side on top of that. So, you know, Fisher Farms at the moment has spent, you know, most of its activity um, in Farm One is now on research and development. So we've been retrofitting a lot of the equipment that we have in Farm 2 into Farm 1 to actually allow us to develop that technology to make sure that it works. And the reason for that is that Farm 1 has about 3,200 square meters of growing space and Farm 2 has 25,000 square meters of growing space. So it's a significant increase in terms of the size of the what we're doing. In order to keep our costs down, we spend a lot of time on automation. So you know, I think there's a big difference potentially in the American market where labor is, I think, cheaper than it is in the UK market. So for us, you know, it's all about the robots who are able to take products off the shelves, down off the racks, harvest it, do cleaning on an automated basis, putting in the new growing material and then seeding it and putting all back into the overall system and so forth like that. So for us, if I look at you know, what we've been doing over the last 12, 24 months or so, is a lot of ensuring that Farm 2 goes live with the best possible technology behind it, which has been tested and tested and tested and tested and tested, because it's very hard to scale. You know, when we when I originally started the business, I thought I was just going to be able to buy things off the shelf. I thought I was going to just go and buy some lights and buy some racking systems and buy some shelves. And that really didn't happen. And that's part of where we are in sort of the growth cycle of vertical farming. And I think that's why you see a lot of different business models, but you also see quite radically different ways of doing vertical farming. So fundamentally, vertical farming is a variation on hydroponics on some kind of shelf with lights. That's what it is at the basic level. But the detail is actually really varied in terms of how people have chosen to do their irrigation, how they've chosen to do their lights, how they've chosen to do their seeding or they do their harvesting and so forth like that as well. So I think it's a bit like looking at early 1900s and the development of the automobile. There were a whole range of different types of car shapes, sizes, how, where the wheels, where the steering wheel was, if you even had a steering wheel. You had electric cars, you had hydrogen vehicles, you know, you had a whole range of, of technologies until they eventually coalesced sort of a Henry Ford Model T sort of variation 
also. And then you had the sort of scale which you resulted and came out of that. So I think that, you know, as a business, a lot of focus is on getting our technology right and sort of basically prepping ourselves for going to market in sort of February, March next year. What's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? I look at every single day we have issues and problems pop up. And it's always a question of, is this problem a today-only problem? Is it a week-only problem? Is a month-only problem? Or is this an existential problem? And, and you don't necessarily know at the beginning of the day what type of problem it's going to be. And so there's a level of, this huge amount of planning which we do in the business. So we're sort of predicting, figuring out what we're going to do, how we're going to get there. But there's also a lot of unknowns. And you know, fortunately, uh, the more we do, the fewer unknowns there are, and the sort of the more repeats uh, businesses sort of types of questions there are. So yeah, for me, it, it's really just doing triage of what kind of issues we have during the course of the day. I think the good news is that I've been entrepreneur for long enough and have encountered enough really bad issues to realize that actually nearly all bad issues can be fixed. There's very few things that can't be fixed. And, and I think my sort of recommendation and sort of advice for sort of other entrepreneurs and other people out there is that you just got to break your problems down into little tiny component parts and solve each one of those tiny little component parts. And before you realize it, you actually would have solved the really big problem by just dealing with all the little piece, little problems bit by bit. And I think just have confidence in yourself that you actually can solve problems. And it goes back to the idea generation. You know, sometimes when we're faced with our hardest problems, we end up with answers which are significantly better than what would have happened had we not had those bad problems in the first place. So, you know, there's, and that's quite a great, that's a great feeling that you actually end up with a better place as a result of having a problem than had you not had the problem in the first place. Yeah, there's something about, uh, I think it's called you stress, positive stress. <laughs> and then that has this effect of forcing us into a mindset where we have to think more deeply about the problem and to your point, come up with a solution that at the end of the day is something we, would, we wouldn't have even thought of had we not been, you know, applied that pressure to ourselves. And I think sometimes we surprise ourselves with, with what's possible. <laughs> it is, it's very surprising what we can come up with. And, uh, but that's yet again, back down to having a good team and having a good team who are happy to share and put their terrible ideas out there and to recombine those terrible ideas into really good ideas. So, and that's culture, really, as much as anything. Now, how do you create that positive culture within a business? Coming up at the top of the hour, and I wanted to leave a couple of minutes, uh, as I've been doing now for these past conversations, given this audience, given that there's a lot of your peers that listen to this podcast, is there a message that you have for the vertical farming industry, for your colleagues in this space, anything that comes to mind? I think that some of the vertical farming businesses have gone into trouble recently. And I think that my sort of just recommendation is that just keep going and you know, work your way out through these issues. And, you know, and ultimately, I think you're going to get through it. Certainly, the whole sector is going to get through this. You know, vertical farming is here to stay. It just makes so much sense. And any kind of short-term issues that people may have, I think are ultimately going to be temporary. So I think just have, have faith in yourselves and in the knowledge that this is a great sector to be in. And you will figure out a way. We always figure out a way. 
Well, I want to thank you for making the time to come on this podcast and for sharing your story. I think the uh, the breadth and width of experience that you bring is really fascinating because you have had experience in so many areas around sustainability, around renewable energy, around you know creating and tackling these issues of food that shortages that we're having. And it feels like you're well poised <laughs> to be in the position you are now. It's almost like all roads in your career led to this moment. And I think uh, what you're doing at Fisher Farms is really inspiring. And I think it's helpful to hear those words from someone who's been doing this for a while for others in the space. So I just want to really applaud all the progress you've made so far and you know, wish you the best on this journey. Well, Harry, that's very kind of you. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, you know, keep up the great, great work which you're doing in Vertical Farming Podcast. And uh, I'm sure you're going to continue to get great guests on board. So well done. And it's, you know, it's very interesting to, to hear other people's stories as well. So thank you, Harry. Thanks again to Tristan for coming on the show. Always appreciate it when these busy folks take a time out of their day, that one hour plus, to have a conversation with me and to share their story with you. I always appreciate it and I'm thankful and I'm glad that they did. Anything we spoke about and covered can be reviewed on our website, verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We always make it a point to write a summary, key takeaways, quotes from the episode, and any resources mentioned so you can get in contact with them if you're finding their subject matter interesting. And we always take time out to celebrate our season seven title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Leave out that last E. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that this is the space where I get to talk about some of the fantastic sponsors and supporters of this show. If you are interested in being one of those sponsors, by all means, reach out to me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We've got inventory available for season seven, and the reach of the show just continues to increase year over year. And we'd love to partner with you and get the word out about your company or service. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co. As a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and we'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week for my conversation with another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. It's the guest I teased out. If you were paying close attention at the end of last episode, we had a little schedule reorg, and that's why Tristan was this week. But next week, without further ado, it'll be Henry Erst from Control Union. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.